Welcome back to Night School, episode 29, The Poems of Emily Dickinson, part seven. And back with me is my esteemed colleague, Mr. Wesley Chance. Welcome back, Mr. Chance. Hey, it's good to be back. Finishing up Emily Dickinson's poems, uh, at least those recommended by the Poetry Foundation 101 page. Yeah, looking forward to doing this quite a bit. And um, just now sharing my screen um, and looking at that page, it looks like the, the two we're doing today are because I could not stop for death, 479, and a not admitting of the wound, 1188. And so, well, especially in this bleak January weather, even here in San Diego, I'm looking forward to talking about death with you today, Mr. Wesley Chance. And so, as usual, I, and I noticed that the Poetry Foundation here insults us by giving us a reading, not thinking, <laughs> thinking that we wouldn't uh, provide the wings to these words ourselves. Just kidding, of course. Um, but um, is it your turn to read or is it mine? Mm, couldn't tell you. I think that I might have read the last one, but I don't okay. remember now. Gosh. I, I think that it, I think that's true because I recall, and this is a funny way to have recalled it, but I, I, I recall that it had more hyphens or dashes and that the one that I had read had fewer dashes. And so, yeah, I'll read this one. Because I could not stop for death, 479. Because I could not stop for death, he kindly stopped for me. The carriage held out but just ourselves and immortality. We slowly drove, he knew no haste, and I had put away my labor and my leisure too for his civility. We passed the school where children strove at recess in the ring. We passed the fields of gazing grain, we passed the setting sun. Or rather, he passed us. The dews drew quivering and chill. For only gossamer, my gown, my tippet, only tulle. We paused before a house that seemed a swelling of the ground. The roof was scarcely visible, the cornice in the ground. Since then, tis centuries, and yet feels shorter than the day. I first surmised the horses' heads were toward eternity. That is a famous one. Um, I didn't know that they passed by the school. That's rather curious. Um, and the kids in the ring that I wonder what they're playing there. Um, or rather striving after ring around the rosy pockets. Yeah, that's what I posy yeah. ashes, ashes. They all fall down. Yeah. The setting that's sun right after that too. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's what I imagined you know, a singing kind of game. And it's a kind of sing-song rhythm to this. And it's a kind of school also, I think, um, where she's sort of schooling herself uh, in preparing herself for death or or sort of coming to terms with it, maybe. Um, but the other thing, the grain, you know, fits that as well, being like a ready for the harvest sort of image. Um, yes, the great reaping. Uh, and uh, let's see. The uh, the image again is of a um, motion, like we saw the frigate uh, and the chariot with the book. Um, this time it's death with his uh, carriage. Um, and the uh, carriage doesn't hold just her and death, but also immortality. So that's like the close of the first stanza. And then the close of the last, of course, is eternity. And uh, that's what the horse's heads are, are pointed towards, it seems like. So 
I, I think we talked a bit about this before when she was talking about fame uh, and sort of the role of, of poetry. Uh, we've discussed a bit. I, I wonder what her distinction here is that um, the carriage holds immortality and it heads toward eternity. Um, it seems like those are really very different places. Like immortality would be something for her, like in the world, perhaps, um, or of her, her soul, right? Her existence as a, as a subject. Um, whereas it, eternity seems like something a bit more cosmic, a bit more impersonal, maybe, uh, even perhaps more mysterious, right? It, it can't be bound in the carriage the same way. Um, you know, of course, death is personified here to an extent. He's like the, the driver. I suppose, um, it, which is, you know, traditional, that, that traditional association with, with, uh, with harvest, uh, again, is implied. Um, but he's, he's also, uh, I guess, quite decorous, right? He's, he has no haste. Um, she uh, has to put on her best sort of business manner um, and, and, and sort of just uh, let everything else go. And then there's this kind of turn after the setting sun there, um, the sun passed them by, right? And the night falls on them. And then we get these uh, more kind of earthy images of, of gossamer, of toll. I guess it's a kind of material. I'm not sure what a tippet is, I'm guessing uh, some kind of garment. I'm not sure. But then, uh, you know, the impression is that they're sort of, you know, underground, actually, the, the house, right, the, um, the site of, you know, her resting place seems like what, what we've got here. And, and that's like reinforced by the rhyme of, of ground and ground. Um, it doesn't get much, you know, much more perfect of a rhyme than that. Like we've been talking, at times she's quite loose or slanty with her rhymes, like ring and sun there. Um, but here you've got the most perfect rhyme imaginable, <laughs> the same word. Uh, and the, uh, the close of the poem, again, you know, contrasting times, um, sort of the mystery of time is unfolded there, centuries, days, and eternity are put into juxtaposition. And you rhyme day with eternity, which is a really cool although not terribly euphonious rhyme. Um, and and it, it sort of sounds like some old uh, hymns. I forget which one, maybe it's Amazing Grace, where they talk about like, in one of the stanzas of that hymn, they're talking about how long they've been um, singing, you know, in the celestial choirs. And, and it's like, you know, um, their sense of time, which I think is true when you sing or when you're in a poetic sort of mode, um, your sense of time is really different. And, uh, and you do sort of point towards at least eternity that way. Um, I don't know how religious to, to make uh, this poem out to be, honestly, but, but it's certainly um, sort of teleological in that, in that deep sense. Uh, I don't know. What do you make of it? Well, I'm just, I, the, it's a very tough poem. And there was something that was said by Nassim Tlaib in The Black Swan, which I'm just about to finish, where he, he describes or describes the opinion of another scholar on Emily Dickinson being that her poems are supposedly recursive. 
and that they uh, they have a fractal nature. And what a fractal is is a recursive system. And what a recursive system is is a system of um, recurring patterns, patterns that reiterate each other. And so we we've seen that often in her structure, right? The quatrain, and the quatrain doing different things with it. And so there's um, there's a similarity and a difference between many of the poems that we've had access to. And we see, again, now these dashes, they're shorter than usual the, that are going on. And we see a lot of, you, you were talking about images of, of the school and of her and her personal relationship with death. We get all these second person pronouns. We, 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 our. Um, it's interesting too, just because it, it recalls to me also just the the language of Dante in the middle of our life. I, we, you know, I found myself in a dark wood and the carriage held but just ourselves as if there's um, in this second personness a sharing, uh, a general aspect of human nature, which of course here is the fact that we all die. And so what is immortality? And, you know, what does immortality look like for us? Because it seems to be something we can't conceptualize. We know what it is to rise. We know what it is to fall. But what does it mean to be forever? And there seems to be a, a tension, I think, like you noticed. There, there doesn't seem to be a lot of religious imagery going on except for that great harvest injury, uh, imagery you were talking about, you know, the great reaping. That's why the grim reaper has a scythe. Um, and Kronos was known to have a scythe, Kronos like time, um, though Carl Carini claims that's an, an incorrect etymology, it's pretty much accepted. Um, and passing the school, yeah, it almost as if it's, it's everywhere. I, I wonder also if, it, if it's being learned about in the school or if it actually you know, passes through the school and something horrible happens and that's how death is and it's ubiquity. But also, um, before I engage with your eternity immortality question, it's just, do you see the penultimate stanza, the house that seemed to swelling of the ground, the roof was scarcely visible, the cornice in the ground. Is that, is that a grave? Is that like a small bump of earth where somebody has been buried? <laughs> yeah, I, I was taking that to be her grave actually, yeah. but I guess yes. if they passed it, Uh, an ornamental molding around the wall of a room. So yeah. it, uh, it's actually like an, a, uh, a part of the wall, I suppose, um, which again sort of like suggests that this place, um, this is going to be like a container uh, for, for something, right? Um, but in the ground and like I said that like that emphasis on the um the the swelling of the ground I suppose that could be something you see from outside of it the cornice the very top of it is still in the ground and so it's I, I think a pretty clear like underworld sort of image that we're getting there right right as if she is being drawn down and just to add to your interpretation about the carriage and death in the carriage of course, a very famous image from Greek mythology, which I had the chance to talk about in the context of Odysseus meeting Nausicaa today and initiation rituals. 
and female initiation rituals and the literature on that um, was the rape of Persephone by Hades, the god of the underworld, who takes her down, who makes, who takes her from a maiden picking flowers to a flower picked to uh, becoming a wife. And it, it seems to be an initiation ritual indicating that, um, you know, the life of a, of a married woman who is often a, a mom is very different from the life of a child, which I think probably every mother would agree with quite a bit. Um, <laughs> and um, so we, we have that image here too of her being carried down into the next um, area of life in this sort of psychopomp way. And um, there seems to be a, some degree of acceptance of this. I'm not sure exactly what to do with the last stanza since then tis centuries and yet feels shorter than a day. Is this her standing outside herself in the time after her death and that she is incapable of perceiving what happens afterwards? I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm just, that's the last bit that I'm struggling with. Yeah, I think, I think that's sort of the idea, right? It's like her ability to imagine this whole process concludes with her ability to imagine looking back on the process somehow. Mm, um, yes, a retrospective. And, and there's a lot of, you know, elision, not only just the word tis, uh, which is nice and archaic, it's the elision of it is, right? But also um, the word it should really be there between yet and feels but it's not, and you don't need it. Like you can, it's understood, I suppose. So it's doubly elided, the word it, first into tis and then out of the phrase entirely out of the clause and yet feels. So it's just sort of gone, whatever it is, you know, that, that sort of dummy oh, word that right. we use to talk about the passage of time. And, and so in the last couplet there too, I first surmise the horse's heads were toward eternity. Were, were what toward eternity, right? Like they were, you know, the verb is implied like you know pointed toward or directed toward but but the verb itself isn't really there you just have the linking verb the the verb of being which is sort of like the fundamental verb after all and and it's such a powerful close um because yeah it sort of makes you ask that question of like so so where is she at this point is she still in transit so to speak is she somehow arrived at eternity um, and, and what's it like there? And again, my, my question is still sort of like, is that different than the immortality that, that uh, kind of accompanies her on the journey? Right, and I will just say that there is a Dantistic precedent for this in that at the end of his poem, at the end of his journey, he does come to uh, paradise, to the beatific image. He does stand above the world in space, in heaven, and perceive the world through a different temporal framework. He perceives the world in the way that, say, heaven might perceive the world rather than just a, a human. And so he sees it in this, with this grander scope, this teleological scope, like this, like this musical symphony leading towards something as the grand beatific image. Um, which is literally what he does see, uh, you know, something that takes shape, the great trinity, the, the three circles. But she, we have this here with her as well. 
centuries or a day time time you know and how it passes changes up here because we see the completion of all things and so the the poem completes with a sense of perfection as in something has done and now has been has happened and now we're reflecting on it and um well yeah yeah no so i guess i agree uh <laughs> it's it's really tough like i i like the comparison to to the end of the paradise uh I get the sense that this is a much, much like that, you know, sort of an ineffability hangs over this of she's, she's arrived at sort of the limits of what it's possible for her to tell us about this um, vision or experience or, or imagination of, of death or whatever this is exactly right. Um, this journey with death accompanying you could just as easily be life instead, right? Um, that you yeah. sort of always are in the, company of death and uh he's got no hurry because because you're gonna arrive there sooner or later and and that's you know all time's right. arrow as far as we're all right well then that's precisely what i was thinking too so just to mention in the last stands again the horse's heads being towards eternity that seems like a nod to either conscious or you know non-consciously to the again the phaedrus which is the image, the, there are the images of the two horses, the noble and the ignoble one and the charioteer. And we've had that image of the carriage already here, leading towards eternity. Um, a figure often in Plato, uh, Plato's works is Socrates. He's generally the sort of protagonist. And uh, a famous quote by him, written by Plato, of course, though, is that one should live, you know, that philosophy is preparation for death. And so life is preparation for death. And so one should live in such a way as to have death be, you know, sort of welcome at the end of it. And so it seems as if she's sort of admitting here also that that is the way she directed her soul and her being and her life towards being able to make that claim that she took that trajectory in, um, in life. I just missed a very small bit of that last Right there can you say just, that just that she uh she uh she was sort of admitting to taking that trajectory towards uh eternity during the course of her life and that that's sort of also the socratic and early platonic way of looking at how life should be lived too so that um one's you know one's death is the completion of one's life the final chapter the end and then the story's over and then you have a you know a book a complete story that then can be offered to somebody. And I do think that's the idea behind throwing mythological figures into the stars, that the Greeks sort of in narrative form, narrative visual form there, imaginative form, got what I just said explicitly, right? Um, that to live an exemplary life makes you into a story worth telling in either a negative way or a positive way. That's also what we were talking about when Dante and Seminar today, so. Well, that's also something she wrote about in, in one of those poems about um, like Arcturus, right? Uh, and right. Star. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, so shall we conclude here with this final suggested poem? Yes, uh, and, then, and then I guess we have to make our own admissions of uh, having the wound and the pain of having to figure out the next American poet or writer to read as part of this, this course. Yeah, yeah, I uh, haven't given it terribly much thought, I have to confess. Um, oh, we might have to hit a frost or two in the interim then. 
okay. that's true. He is a major, yeah, he's a major one that we could we could look at. Um, all right, so here's a not admitting of the wound, 1188. A not admitting of the wound until it grew so wide that all my life had entered it, and there were troughs beside a closing of the simple lid that opened to the sun until the tender carpenter perpetual nail it down. Okay, so um, there's so much Christian imagery in here that it's going to be hard to get through it all in a small amount of time. But the idea of a wound or a, a wound that is not admitted to, the idea of original sin, a sin here, or, or something that expands out like a bad habit, like the relationship of Cain to Tubal Cain. Um, there's something like Cain, uh, if somebody kills him, seven of their family members or will be killed. But then when you get down to Tubal Cain, it's like 70 will be killed. And, and also it's an, and a descendant of Cain who comes up with the weapons of war eventually that are used to kill people. So the idea seems to be that if you leave something unacknowledged and I'll also bring up the, how to, uh, what is it? What is that dragon book that Peterson always talks about? How to, not how to train a dragon because that's the movie, but, um, there's no such things as dragons or something like that. I can't believe I forgot the name. Um, don't remember. Sorry. I know what you're talking any, about, though. Yeah. In any case, in any case, the idea of there being um, being a sort of natural wound to man, uh, like sort of the pride of Lucifer or something like that, that if it goes unacknowledged, it gets larger and larger and larger, seems to be a very sort of Old Testament idea than sort of um, we get this major transition to uh, Christian New Testament imagery. A closing of the simple lid, just an idea of a completion. And that again, that, that sort of the vast or the cavernous or the gulfing gap between the first quatrain and then the Trinitarian triplet that we have after it. Um, uh, so we have something closing and ending at the beginning of something new, which is an opening to the sun. The sun is a traditional image of both Apollo and Christ as that which enlightens uh, in the idea of Apollo as attention and Christ as the logos, or, you know, the ability to rationally think as a human, which is a he the human's major adaptation to the world, which is the, the coming of the word of God from man or from God to man, which is the coming of rationality and the ability to use one's conscious intellect as a human. And so we have that. Until the tender carpenter perpetual nail it down. Again, carpenter, uh, she does often um, capitalize her nouns, life up there, carpenter here. Um, major Christian image here. So Jesus was a carpenter. He was nailed to a cross which is an image for, you know, human nature and divine nature being wedded together in violence and pain um, because life is painful and you suffer precisely because you are conscious. And of course, the idea that uh, Jesus's father was a carpenter, Joseph, but also his divine father, uh, like Zeus for Heracles, who has a divine father. Uh, it's God who is the great carpenter and that he formed the earth, right? And so... So it's almost as if she has the Old Testament in a quatrain where Adam commits the, you know, Adam and Eve commit the initial act of sin and things just get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse 
and then bang, out comes hope from Pandora's box in the form of Christianity and the Christian savior. And just to tie that to the theme of death, it's just, it is precisely through his death that, um, that he redeemed man. And so it's almost as if she's suggesting that it might be a human's duty to die for something that they value, that they consider so important that it's worth dying for, because that is a guarantee that other people will see it as valuable, because that is giving that which is of highest value that you have for something that you must believe is of even higher value. And I wonder if that's what she thinks she's doing by giving us these poems as well. This one is, uh, I, I see like the way it's displayed here has a trip uh, or a tercet in the second stanza, but I really feel like that could just as easily be a, a quatrain, which sure. the second line of it has just been run together with the first line of it. And I, it's right. interesting what that does to the look of the poem. It, it, it does distinguish the two stanzas much more sharply having it displayed this way. And so I wonder, I mean, it does seem that that was intentional because I, I think we can trust the curation of this, um, or at least we're, we're implicitly sort of trusting the curators of this page to have kind of copied and transcribed these accurately as best they, you know, the editors have been able to kind of discern. I, anyway, though, I mean, I, I agree that there's a kind of duality to this one. And it's interesting, too, in in the sense of the first one has a, a wideness and openness of it. And the second is all about the closing of that openness, right? And so it's like, what is the thing that's being closed? Um, hmm. Is it the wound? You know, like, cause that's one way that you could interpret it, I guess. Um, but it certainly seems like the more likely candidate is, is the simple lid, um, like the eye, the eyelid is, is how I'm kind of hearing that. Um, or, or of this, Imagining this like, you know, a kind of box, which right. you can think of as like the casket or, or the, yes. you know, the chest that, that held your life. Well, now it's time to close it, right? And the nesting of that carpenter noun between the two adjectives, or I'm not sure if perpetual could be an adverb too, like it's sort of doing double duty there. Um, the tender carpenter perpetual, nail it down, or the tender carpenter perpetual nail it down like that's a weird and um sort of ambiguous uh modifier there um i i definitely hear the the allusion to the cross uh to the traditional stories of um and and the traditional sort of interpretations but i, I do think that she's she's definitely playing with those as well here um, and I don't know quite what to make of, you know, this, this life that she's, um, sort of letting go of here, right? It's, it's on the one hand, um, her maybe physical life. On the other hand, maybe it's her sort of spiritual or, you know, her hope for an eternity that she's sort of letting, letting it fall into some kind of wound, um. I think there's a lot of possible ways, even though the, the words are so simple, you know, it's still a really complex poem. I wouldn't say I've quite, you know, nailed it down myself. 
That's interesting. I, and I wonder, you know, I do see the tension between whether it is perpetually nail or a perpetual carpenter, um, especially if it is a carpenter perpetually nailing it down, because then it's a continual act into eternity, right? Which seems a little less final, uh, though it is final and that it, it is the only thing that will ever happen. It is not final in that it is complete, um, except in sort of a divine sort of way in that you, if you consider one part of the action, part of the eternal action, if you perceive it teleologically, which perhaps that is how one is supposed to perceive a poem. But yeah, uh, I, I, I like that you hone in, home in on life too, because life, just like in the Old Testament, the tree of life, is precisely the tree that they did not eat from, Adam and Eve. They did eat from the tree of knowledge, and it's almost as if there's a tension between eternal life and knowledge, and that if you acquire knowledge and understand also through carnal knowledge the point of reproduction, you understand also your, you know, the, pot, the actuality of, and the eventuality of your own death, and that to stay naive, um, is the only thing that will save you from knowledge of your death and suffering. But, um, well, at least in the second paragraph, it looks like that's not the way she ended up choosing it. Um, it's like the coming of the sun or the coming of the ability to reflect. It's, it's made me think that perhaps the relationship between the New Testament and the Old Testament is like the coming of the moon after the sun, that there was so much activity in the beginning of time that now it's time to reflect on it all and to come to understand it. Perhaps that's what the age of science has been. And, well, looks like Miss Dickinson is part of that process as well. Yeah, it's exciting to try to apply some more sophisticated, um, maybe scientific approaches, right, to reading some of this stuff. I still am convinced that the, the most essential things about it you know, are, are to kind of read it out loud and, yes. and bring it to life in that, in that sense as well. Um, that's, yeah. And, and to kind of hold open as much as possible the, the various kinds of interpretation that we have been uh, uh, kind of having this give and take around. Um, I like uh, the idea of, of looking at Robert Frost next. That seems like good move um i'm sure that we can find some good stuff on here to uh to kind of orient us um i i'm not super familiar with his work either like I, i've read some of it but not a whole whole lot neither am i and if we ever want to guess on here it might be worth uh, a minute of our time to send an email to the poetry foundation webmasters and see if maybe they maybe we could ask them on and uh, ask them what they think in ideal american poetry uh, um, sort of unit or or course would be, and perhaps right. we could take some of some of the some of their their pearls from them, and we could do our best not to be like Mar uh, to not be Margarita Nun or Margarita uh, Ante Porcos <laughs> pearls huh. swine before pearls you know, or pearls before swine. There, I uh, yeah no, I have I've sent them a a message through their little contact form but that was just a day or two ago. So I haven't heard back yet, but I, I'm still hoping. And there's yeah. other kind of partners of theirs that maybe we can reach out to and, and stuff like that. So yeah, I imagine that we'll, we'll get a guest or two on here sooner or later. 
All right. Well, and uh, well, then I'm speaking of, uh, for those listeners who listen to everything and just want the info, they don't have a particular subject matter. We will be broadcasting bright and early tomorrow. Wes, what time is it that uh, we're going to be uh, uh, having side quests tomorrow? If all goes well, it'll be 1 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time. Which Very good. Very good. Means, you know, bright and early. Um, we'll see how it goes. Yeah. I, I'm looking forward to it. And, uh, well, I'll, uh, I'll see you later tonight. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. All right. Get some rest. See ya. You too. You too.